This episode of the Second Floor Podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. What's going on, guys? It's your host, Kenny Buller, here on the Second Floor Podcast. This is a very special episode for me uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, we're celebrating Second Floor's third birthday, which is awesome. And who better than my best friend and uh, KB Buller, my brother's uh, right-hand man in his corner as one of his coaches, uh, Daniel Czar, come on the show. Uh, You guys remember and know Danny really well if you've been following the journey. Daniel Czar is the finance manager of Car West by day. So if you need uh, any vehicles that are used and that are in mint condition, Daniel is your guy to go to in Edmonton, Alberta. So you can uh, reach out to him through Car West. But uh, on another note, Danny, other than being, um, you know, one of my best friends, is one of KB's head coaches as one of his striking specialists. So Danny was there when we went to Abu Dhabi, when KB debuted the UFC. Danny was there when we were in Vegas. Danny's been there all the way through every single step towards KB's uh, MMA career since he came back into the fight game. So uh, we just thought, hey, you know what? It's been long overdue. It's been a year since we went out last year. And um, on this week, it being fight week for KB, he'll be debuting in the UAE Warriors fighting um, Edmonton time, 8 a.m. on Friday, October 29th. So we thought there's plenty of reasons why it's so important to bring Danny on the show right now for us to just talk about what our experience was like, talk about Danny's experience being in KB's corner, coaching him, and as well talk a little bit about our love for jiu-jitsu and um, how to gear up for competition and what it looks like in the coach's corner. So um, this is one of our Coach's Corners uh, featured episodes on Season 3. If you guys like this episode, please comment, please share it, please let us know what you think. And without further ado, we're going to take a deep dive in. Thank you for tuning in, guys, and we'll see you on the show. Hey, without further ado, we've got DZ Breezy Danny Czar on the show today. Don't mind my voice. I know I sound like I, uh, I don't know. Does my voice sound different? Sound a little raspy. This is what happens, man. Every time I go out and celebrate. See, you're yelling too much? Is that what yeah, happens? Yeah, exactly. When the vocal cords go up a little too high, I got to gotta recognize that with a podcast the next day, you know? Didn't drink enough water last night. And uh, now I sound like an old man going through puberty. It's a compounding effect. But here's what I do want to say, man. Solid introduction. If I could bring anyone on the show, bro, for the third year of Second Floor Podcast being in operation, it's you, man. Wow. So happy third birthday. We're bringing on Danny for like the eighth millionth time on the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way Ovid put it. But uh, man, before we were recording, you were just telling me that we did an episode. <laughs> I you honestly, don't remember it. <laughs> I don't remember it. 
<laughs> I feel so bad, but I think you and me are in agreement that we're in very different places now. You know, then, especially with the show, it was very business oriented, right? We're driven off the fact of talking to people who are passionate about what they do, mm-hmm. we brought you on. And man, like since then, three, like almost two, two and a half years later, you got to go to Dubai with me. You got to corner KB. You got to be a part of um, his entire journey going into the UFC and still as one of his striking coaches. So I just want to acknowledge you, man. Like it was so cool to see how far you've gone into, let's say, just your your love and your passion for coaching. And, you know, the, the catch-22 for me is just seeing how you and me were like 15, 6, like 10, 11 years ago and we were training partners together and then now you're – advice and your skill sets help uh, one of our brothers improve day after day in what he does uh, in MMA. So, I mean, it's it's cool reflection period time today where I know a lot of these stuff we talked about many times, we're going to feel like we've repeated ourselves. But um, a lot of people on the show, a lot of our friends were asking about what our experience was like mm-hmm. uh, when we went to Abu Dhabi for KB's um, first fight, when you know we went to Vegas. And just in general, like your take on what it's been like fight after fight being as I know and you know way more involved in KB's um, athleticism and in his career in fighting so um, yeah man I just want to bring you on shoot the shoot the shit a little bit and and talk a little bit about um, when those shifts happen uh, why they happen and and how much your involvement had so much to do with KB's growth Um, I think that'd be pretty cool to just talk yeah I know absolutely you definitely hit it on the on the head right there I mean where to start off, right? It all it all started with us being initially training partners and, and competitors within like an atmosphere that was um, just highly driven with people that were very athletic, people who really wanted to push themselves and succeed in professional fighting, whether it was, you know, within the MMA realm or whether it was in the boxing realm or even the grappling realm. So we had initially had kind of this atmosphere, this environment of a bunch of guys who were tremendously good at, at the time, at, you know, within MMA and, and the other two disciplines who really wanted to push each other. And I think that we naturally being similar in age at the time, being similar in kind of personality um, and more importantly, being very driven to, to grow. We are very competitive. And then, you know, we developed a relationship from there. Um, I mean, it all started off with us as training partners, right? And uh, we all had our, certain certain skill group that uh you know we kind of excelled in um and and at the end of the day i think it was just seeing who was good at what and how we can help each other improve um in different aspects of mixed martial arts mm-hmm. so for me in particular i was uh you know a strike I, I just boxing was the thing that i'd done right so i didn't have to focus initially on jujitsu wrestling kickboxing taekwondo I had one discipline that I could spend all of my time attempting to master. Uh, so, you know, it gave me a lot of hours in the gym, um, refining my skills in boxing. And uh, I eventually ended up, you know, competing quite a bit in amateur boxing in the circuit there. Uh, I ended up leaving Hayabusa, the gym that we're both at together. And then full circle, um, just by remaining our, you know, remaining close and, and, and harvesting our, our friendship within our group, uh, full circle, it, it came around where, we were all training together. Um, and of course I've learned quite a bit in jujitsu and kickboxing from you and KB. Uh, and it's just, you have to give you, you have to, I mean, give what you're good at to your friend group, you know, as well. So 
uh, you know, that was the evolution of it. Uh, it was just something that was very fun and, and something that we were all passionate about and something that we spent a lot of time doing together while like, creating that relationship. Do you feel like it kind of happened by accident or like it was like all planned that way for you to have such a high level of uh, involvement as KB's coach? Like you brought up a good point where like we were all training partners at mm -hmm. one point in time and, you know, we were all just feeding off one another. We just like we we'd show up and... At first, it was KB teaching us. Yeah. And then there was so much you knew that personally, even when I looked at from the outside in, that would be so advantageous to KB's striking game. And then there was like this unique um, level of respect that he gained from you, uh, not only just as a best friend, right, but as like someone who he knew he could learn from. Mm. I think that's a really unique thing. I don't know when you personally saw it, but I know it was very much so there at a point in time where... Uh, let's just go back. You know, he came back to fight Corey Atkinson when KB took the, uh, um, you know, four-year break from fighting, mm -hmm. two, three-year break. And then from there, you were involved. But every fight towards going into the UFC and then now coming back and working his way up to it again, you had more and more and more involvement each fight. So, like, where do you feel like that kind of all organically happened where you're like, holy shit, I'm like, I'm KB's coach now. Yeah, it was kind of like a organic evolution, kind of like you stated. Initially, it was never we never had that coach, um, striking coach, you know, student mentality. KB being older than us, right? I always looked at KB kind of like an older brother, somebody who who could be an older brother figure, who could be kind of a best friend figure. Um, and it, like I said, it was something that we both enjoyed doing. And then, of course, as he started training more seriously upon his return four or five years ago, like you'd stated. Um, it became more serious, right? So I kind of had to fill in that role um, just because we were such uh, committed training partners for a long time prior to him coming back. We were doing strength and exercising. We were doing conditioning together. He was actually my coach, uh, you know, for, for, for the speed of sport that's uh, cool. era. That's where so it really did start. That's kind of where we, we developed the, the habit of training together all the time, right? And so, of course, we had tons of initial conversations about you know, and, and at me, I was encouraging him to get back into fighting. So I think that seed was planted and I think he knew that he was going to get back into fighting. So it was just, it happened at the perfect time. Um, you know, and me and him doing speed of sport together, he taught me a tremendous amount about strength and conditioning, explosive workouts, plyometrics, stretching, a, a whole different avenue of um, exercise uh, that I wasn't accustomed to initially, right? And so, uh, you know, organically it just developed into, okay, he, he decided first off he was coming back to fight and unified against Corey Atchison. Uh, and then from there, it was like, okay, so we had trained together for, you know, maybe three years consistently up until that point, maybe two years consistently. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to help him develop his boxing game and his striking because he initially had so much raw talent, right? He was tremendous at, at kickboxing, at taekwondo, uh, very flashy kicks, very aggressive, uh, but he lacked some of the fundamental basics in boxing, right? And so it was just initially it was kind of me helping him develop those basic, uh, you know, th that foundation. And he, he did definitely have the foundation, but it was just refining it. And it was funny how it all started at, you know, those early camps uh, when he when he came back. We were just focusing on the most ridiculous things. Like <laughs> throwing like 15 
punch kick combinations with switch stances and angle changes and that was <laughs> that was our focus right <laughs> and so we really had to bring it back to the basics in the garage i remember this was always happening in the garage in the garage this was good life. this was before we even got mats like, <laughs> yeah, a lot of good lives you guys were a lot of good at. life sessions Man. and uh yeah i mean we didn't really have too much direction on on what we wanted to focus on but we had a lot of creativity and we had a lot of fun doing it um you know and as he progressed in his skill set and and uh, furthered his career, we just, you know, we built this chemistry and, and, and we really had to find what needed to be worked on. And you, then that's where we found it. You brought a good point about direction there. And I think that's, uh, first of all, it's super cool, obviously, to see two really solid friends make a coach. And I, there's no other word for this, I guess. I was going to say client, but a client sounds weird in this case. Like a coach and pro athlete relationship, mm -hmm. how it started off as a relationship. You know, I find so many times people are looking for the best coach, but it's like, all right, well, look and see who's in your corner. Who are your training partners? Who are, you, who are the coaches there? Who are the people that you already have a really solid relationship with? And how it now organically turned into something where there is direction because there's a lot of clear direction in your guys' training now mm -hmm. from how it sounds, how it's planned, how, um, you know, anything I'm sure... Uh, you guys wish to, to discuss on air because I know a lot of that stuff for, for, for good reason when it, when you're fighting and preparing for a strategy with a specific fight you just don't care to share um, with this airing tomorrow KB's fighting uh, next week with his biggest opponent yet with UAE Warriors um, but I mean this fight aside it being short notice talking about direction in other fights where did you notice that started happening like, like what did you feel like you needed to do as a coach to create direction if you compare that to like you realizing before it was like, all right, well, today maybe KB is the one saying, all right, bro, like let's just do like a bunch of kicks or let's mm -hmm. work on this. Like where did you start noticing you started to get to call the shots? Yeah, I mean, it was very... And how it happened. That's, that's a great question. I mean, it was very experimental initially, right? Um, we both didn't have too much direction, but there was still a good amount of growth. Um, once we've, you know, we, we looked at KB's game as a whole you know, a, a whole like organic being in, in itself, we decided, you know, through communication and conversation, what needed to be worked on. Um, and then we just worked from the ground up from there. And, uh, you know, it, it's a grind, it's repetitive, but the direction came from not having direction in, in the first place, right? And, and we, we saw what was missing within the regiments and it was just things that we needed to add on. So just through a lot of transparent conversation, we, we, we got to a point where, uh, we just solely focused on things that needed to be worked on or strengths that could get better, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than doing these flashy combinations. And, you know, it, it was just one of those things where we just, uh, we refined what we focused on. And that's how we saw uh, the most growth, right? When you don't have direction, you don't really have a goal at the end of it. And that could be problematic. Well, when you have direction, you typically have a goal. You, you, you have an objective that you want to complete, whether it's working on the jab, whether it's working on going to the body, whether it's level changes, whether it's shoot boxing, you know, there's so many different avenues on little things that you can work on and you do it long enough, you get good enough, you know, where you can proceed and do something else. Um, I think it's very important that, you know, and this is something that I've learned just through experiment, you know, experimenting with KB and, and mind you, I haven't trained other clients or fighters on a consistent basis. This was kind of a position that developed organically from a friendship and it's something that we both are extremely passionate about, right? We both love fighting from, 
from the ground up, right? Even mm-hmm. as fans, so we can relate quite a bit on that, uh, you know, on that side of things. But um, yeah, I mean, once you develop uh, kind of a practice, once you develop a direction, um, you simply, you know, you, you get to the objective quicker. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. You see. You see what holes need to be fixed, especially once someone actually is fighting. And you see what does need to be worked on. I thought it was pretty cool to just see how much you've personally improved KB's skill sets at being defensively aware. You know, that's alongside his other coaches, right? Like there was just so much um, changes that occurred there through, um, you know, KB's UFC experiences that you like went hands on with and didn't, including KB, take a a day to waste Mm -hmm. to be like, all right. This is how we looked at things before. We're going to flip it. And immediately it was cool to just see you take on this like defensive aspect of coaching where it's like, okay, here's something that we don't work on. We don't work on defense. Yeah. So now you're going to defend. And I'll never forget when you told me what that conversation sounded like. We're like, you know, sometimes your athlete or someone can, can hesitate to it. And um, the little bit of that was happening. And then when you started to, you know, you, you, you started to create a little bit of that assurity of hey let's try it let's work on it you know i remember when you were saying that at that time kb's like no why are we gonna do this why are you just gonna hit me and then you're like let's just try it and then you guys did and it was eye-opening for him and he's like oh wait wait a second like this level of training and this is what we're doing you're, you're right danny like this works and i felt like that was one of many moments around that time where it, it's, a, it's a unique thing i don't know if other athletes can testify to this um i know i kind of can with jujitsu where like i look at a coach who may not have been my main coach. I just look at them and they'll say things to me or they pay a special type of attention to me. And I almost just want to be like on my knees for that person. Yeah. (laughs) And just be like, okay, wow. Like, first of all, I'm honored that you're able to be honest with me and share this. But second of all, you're looking at things the way I wasn't even looking at, Mm -hmm. you know, and and they take that time. And it's just cool to see how you did that for KB and it translated over into him. Um, great, awesome, fantastic example was his recent fight uh, with going back to Unified where like there was so many punches that that person was throwing that, you know, KB executed beautifully on moving his head, getting mm-hmm. out of the way. But that was so much defensive awareness that was practiced, even in his um, fight with Michalides in, in, in the UFC, <laughs> which I believe I butcher everyone's <laughs> names, right? But even then, right? Like there was so much that was practiced and ex- executed that was done well yeah. to not get hit. And that was kudos to you, man. And that was like kudos to the, like the training that obviously you, Kedro, and many of his other coaches are on the same page mm-hmm. on. And I think that's what I kind of want to like take this into consideration is like how important it is to be on the same page. Like that must be a unique experience for you guys in the team where you do work on a certain aspect and then KB has another striking coach yeah. where they work on another aspect. Um, I mean, for our audience, because obviously this season is very, you know, uh, fitness-based, very, like, athletic-focused. Uh, us taking on a coaching perspective, what are some of the things that maybe you you did or you do now to be on the same page with other coaches for an athlete? Like, is that something that you think about or is that something that, like... Yeah, I think it's just... I mean, at the end of the day, it's, like, consistent communication with the fighter to see what he's been working on with Kedro and Jeff, right? Yeah. And then seeing, you know, it's not like I correspond with Kedro... KB's other striking coach on a consistent basis to see yeah. what he's working on with KB, but just it's just uh, direct communication with KB, you know, and it's touching base on a regular basis. I think consistency and 
uh, is the most important thing, right? Being up to date with, with who you're training and, and what he's practicing outside of, uh, you know, uh, the time that you've spent with him, I think is super important. And then at the end of the day, it's like recognizing where, you know, for a fighter, it's not like uh, fighters are in the NHL where they get to play 82 games to display their skill set. And they have a prolonged season where they can continue, you know, if they make a mistake on game one, they have game two and three and four and five to, you know, eventually prove themselves and, 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 you know, show you the skills that they've been working on within practice. Well, unfortunately with fighting, a lot of the times you only get 15 to 25 minutes every three to six months to show people what you've been working on within the gym for the past six months, you know, for the past six years, for the past 10 years. Um, so you have such a small amount of time to display, you know, your skill set, what you've been working on and the improvements within that specific camp. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it is fortunate at the same time. So when we have a situation where KB goes to the UFC on his debut fight, uh, sure enough, it was a two week short notice stint. He takes the fight and we're extremely confident that KB was going to do well in the fight and ends up getting caught with a shot that he probably shouldn't have got caught with. Well, the next thing that we need to look at is, okay, why did you get caught with that shot? And how are we going to make sure that we can find a resolution so it doesn't happen again? Totally. So the biggest thing is recognizing and holding, you know, the coaches accountable and holding the, the fighter accountable as well. Uh, what, you know, part of your game got exploited that needs to be fixed. And so in, in KB's case, the initial UFC debut, uh, it was the offensive error that was, uh, that was the mistake, right? And clearly there's so many different factors that, you know, play, play the part in a fight, a lot of intangibles um, that can't necessarily be coached from, from the outside perspective. But uh, it's just finding what can be worked on. And then from there, developing a program to make sure that you're doing it consistently enough where it's recognizable in the next fight. Uh, and secondly, where uh, it's verbalized, you need to work on this, right? It, it, it can't be something, and I've probably made this mistake myself being a coach, um, where you don't communicate effectively. Uh, you don't you don't directly tell the fighter what needs to be worked on. So they're kind of in a confusion. You just do drills that will help them in that regard, but mm -hmm. they're not entirely sure why they're doing it. So um, just getting direction kind of falls back on that point, right? Um, yeah. And working on the things that need to be worked on based on fight experience. Very well said, man. Yeah, that's... You know, when you see where something happened you, you can't just you can't just ignore what needs to be worked on yeah right like there's just certain holes that you might have noticed that weren't even there because it was a, something that never happened and uh yeah you you you're absolutely right man when, when it comes to um what a lot of people were wondering about uh, I, I it's kind of funny man there's like so many people that like thought that um our, our abu dhabi trip was like this grand experience mm -hmm. where they're like oh did you guys go out did you guys like you know did you see it's like abu dhabi sheiks and did you like <laughs> did you guys like go on like motorsport races and like just like <laughs> think like high rollers pretty stuff. damn close <laughs> and, uh, man i'll never forget like <laughs> i'm thinking of the jet skis <laughs> but um man if anything, it was, I forgot who said this. I think all of us said it and agreed, but I think I heard it from a guy in an elevator where I asked, or you asked him, Hey man, like, how's your experience here so far? And he's like, Oh man, it's like a, it's like a glorified prison. Like it's like yeah. a five-star hotel prison. Cause we weren't allowed to leave where we were at. We were quarantining prior to the fight the whole time. 
And um, I found it funny how, like, so many people were thinking we were going to be out partying every day. And, like, it's like we're we're here for work. We're here for KB. We're here to support him. And we were literally training inside of a freaking hotel room. Like, there was the four square mats. And you and Tanner were sparring hard on the four square <laughs> mats. And we were all holding pads for each other. We're all getting COVID tests every single day. Like, it was the funniest shit show. But it was also like a five-star shit show. Yeah. That was the funny thing. Like, I'll be honest. It was it looked amazing. We were getting free <laughs> food every single day. We could choose between five restaurants. But um, I just wanted to know, if you look back on your experience with with um, everything that happened, um, like, share with us one of your most <laughs> iconic memories of that trip. Like, going, you know, our our boy, our best friend, your, your athlete, like, all the above, KB gets UFC debut. We go to Abu Dhabi and we're there. Um, what was like a highlight? And what was something obviously besides the result? What was like things that just really ticked you off about that trip? Well, the, I can't. I can't give you a specific thing that was the highlight of the whole trip. Yeah, I think the whole thing was was, was filled with laughter. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was a comedy show. <laughs> it was so the funny. Time, we had like. We had four awesome characters, <laughs> you know, confined to a bedroom for like seven days straight before we were allowed to leave the hotel. Uh, although we were still confined to like, they gave us a lot of space, which was crazy. We can go to the beach. We can go to like the basketball court. So we had a lot of space to roam when we finished our seven day quarantine, you know, the first four, di- four three or four days being in Vegas and <laughs> flying to Abu Dhabi, having another three days in the hotel room. Um, it was filled with laughter. You know, we, we got a lot of solid sessions in. We had a, a lot of great discussions about different things, about fighting, about life, you know, just... So that was that was the highlight of it. Um, the annoying things clearly were, you know, the UFC, it was, they were tremendously organized, but the issue that they had had were, you know, they, they'd COVID test you every single day. And they, they have to realize that we're trying to um, get accustomed to the new time zone out there. And although it is a, it's eight hours difference, you know, we had to have our sleep schedule. So we were falling asleep. What, what time were we falling asleep? We at? were trying to, that was the piss off. We were trying to sleep throughout up the day at night to yeah. acclimate for the fight. Cause KB was fighting at 4am. Yeah. So we were trying, trying to, to the day. we were trying to sleep during the day and we were trying to stay up during the night, right. To acclimate to fight time. And in the middle of our sleep around noon, they'd come bang on our doors and they would <laughs> demand COVID tests and Tanner would always get so pissed off. Tanner would fucking get livid. And it was so funny to see his reaction because they'd wake him up every single time. Um, so you know, little things like that were pretty annoying. Um, other than that, I mean, the UFC clearly did a, a tremendous job organizing, uh, you know, four or 500 people during a pandemic in a different country. Um, so little complaints besides uh, the time difference and, and clearly having to stay up till four, five, six in the morning to acclimate to fight time. I think that was a mistake that they made. I think they ended up adjusting that mistake too and they'd realized it. A lot of the fighters were tired. We were the guinea pigs, exactly. Because the next week over, uh, or two weeks later, I think it was, Khabib ended up fighting his last fight. It was actually a year ago today, ironically enough, against Justin Gaethje. And it was a 2 p.m. pay-per-view fight here in Edmonton, here in Canada, uh, meaning out there they fought at like 8, 9 p.m. Right, which was perfect for them because that's clearly the time that they typically fight at. So they ended up making a, a pretty solid adjustment. But all in all, the experience was was absolutely tremendous. Besides the result, um, and at the end of the day, the result kind of defines the trip. Unfortunately, for a, a lot of people who weren't there, um, 
but you move on, you grind and, and you make sure that the next time you come around, you, you get the proper result. So that's what we've been working on and KB's fighting next week. And uh, I think it's going to be a tremendous showing of how much he's grown since the UFC Big and time. even since his last fight. So um, you live and you learn and you move on and you take the L's uh, and you keep fucking moving forward and you don't give up. That's, that's what I thing. That's that's what I really appreciate about KB and, and his team, including you and everyone just having just a, a way higher um, positive outlook on everything where it's like you, you're making these vast improvements every single fight and it's been very well noticed especially the past three mm -hmm. um and it's just it's really unique to see now that uh he got the call to abu dhabi again and literally on his birthday a year after he came back on his birthday so it's kind of it's crazy too timing wise where uae was going to be uh just that next step that uh was going to be after the ufc to eventually get back in there and um, man, we're about to see some greatness happen come Thursday. It's gonna be weird not being there. That's a mm -hmm. something I wanted to share with you. Where we're so used to at the very least physically watching KB, if not being in his corner. And uh, I know we're supporting him from a distance, but uh, no, you're absolutely right, man. To fight the light heavyweight champion out there, who's 11 and seven, who um, I feel like with his style, will you know KB will be able to do really well against this guy. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to be supporting him at 8 a.m. on Friday at our time. I think that's pretty much the time we'll have to watch it, right? Um, outside of that, man, I um, I feel like mainly that's that's really what I wanted to cover. Like I, I, you ended up talking a lot about your coaching experience, and do you think based off of it you'd ever like want to coach more, or this is just something you strictly realize through the balance of everything you do with Car West? And everything that you've got going on in your life that like it's a one like the one and only person you're coaching is kb yeah that's a great question um god damn it's it's a commitment oh, right 100%. especially if you want to train multiple people it's something that you've put uh, hours and i'm the type of guy if i want to do something i want to do it all in yeah so if i can if i can do it all in with kb um, you know, obviously there's a balance of my schedule having to help run a business. And then I, I, I don't know if I would do a full time, maybe eventually when, mm -hmm. I, when I'm a, a bit older, uh, I would want to give back to, to kids and the youth and stuff like that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Right. And Brave, but, fit, but Brave uh, BJJ and, uh, MMA will be, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be ready, man. We'll be ready. <laughs> well, Kenny will be a great coach. <laughs> I'm sure KB will be there too. I'll, I'll be there for some classes. Just, maybe I'll be a substitute every now and then yeah, if they need one. Sub. I'll be like a special guest for seminars. <laughs> Seminar purposes only. Only if I wear your patches. <laughs> yeah, my wear. patches? Yeah, I got to rock your patches. What patch? You're going to have like DZ like logo. You know how it is, man. The, in our MMA and jiu-jitsu community, you got to rock the patches, you know? Like, no, that's too formal for me, man. That's formal. that's too formal. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe with your with your dojo, you got to rock the, the patches, man, Carl, which is respectable, respect, though. Respect, bro. It's respectable. I think uh, having pride from you know what gym you're you're at is very important. Yeah. Although it's an individual, what do you think about this? How much does a uh, you know obviously the team plays a massive role, but when it comes to you and jujitsu competitions, how much do you find that having a strong corner is important for you to succeed during competition? Oh, it's so important, man. I feel so alone and I don't have a corner. I feel very alone. Like I'll be honest, Pan Ams. I almost felt like overconfident going into it. So that was in Florida. Mm -hmm. And when I went into that competition, man, I felt so overconfident because our whole team was there. Mm -hmm. So our coach was there. He was right there 
two meters away from me being able to provide me advice. Then for Nogi Worlds, I felt... I, I didn't necessarily feel as alone as I thought I'd be. Um, my coach was calling right before each match. He was giving me advice. He looked into uh, a certain tape of my opponents, uh, the two that I fought, and he was like telling me what to look out for, which was awesome. So I didn't necessarily feel that alone. So I noticed for me, yeah, like having a corner is super important. I think having one from, okay, an MMA or jiu-jitsu perspective, having the right person there to call the shots and to look out for things, very important. But also from an MMA perspective, I just think having the good company. Like obviously you and me were like ready to ship bricks when we almost realized that Kibi might not have a cornerman for this fight coming up. And that was going to suck. But that's based off of like, okay, you're not even having a, a person for a week for you to just genuinely like keep keep you level-headed, you know, be able to like allow you to just not be in your head the whole time. But also just have someone that you can like speak the same language and tell funny stories and, and be able to like hold pads decently or like at least mm -hmm. know what it is that you're looking for. You know, who better than Tanner to go out with KB too, right? But uh, yeah, man, I think it's super important. I think it plays hugely into... Um, the the athlete knowing that they're not going in alone. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's up to you, um, but uh, there's certain things that your cornermen will see that you don't. This episode of Second Floor Podcast is brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Many people don't call their optometrist first for urgent eye care when they need it. So from spring cleaning mishaps to winter eye infections, if you or your family have an eye emergency, doctors of optometry are trained to diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications. There's no referral necessary. And just a reminder, Alberta health coverage is available towards your urgent eye care appointments. To find an optometrist in your area, visit optometrist.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across Alberta. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care directly to Albertans. Learn more at optometrist.ab.ca. Dot ca. What do you expect from a good cornerman? This has been a debate as of recently. I think uh, last week on one of the UFC fight cards, there's two females fighting, and and one of the one of the girls was just very inactive, not doing a good job, and and the coach was brutally honest with with his fighter and said, "Listen, you're you're blowing it." And she, the coach got super passionate with her, and you go you go on Twitter and it was this this massive controversy surrounding like how he treated the athlete. Mm. And people were like, "Oh." Now he's belittling her and it was this whole, and he ended up apologizing for it. But from your perspective, um, what defines a, a good corner? Is it somebody who's going to be brutally honest with them, with the fighter, you know, during the heat of the battle, or is it somebody who's going to be an enabler and say, Oh, you're doing good when realistically, mm. you know, they're not probably doing very well. That's a really good question, man. I'll be honest. I think a, a very good mix of both, but uh, time and place. So be brutally honest with me after, right? After the fight, really? After the fight. Be yeah. brutally honest with me after. I noticed my coach, Pedro, shout out to him. He was brutally honest with me after based off my performance in the preparation of the fight. So like my camp, what I did before, he gave me really solid advice. And I'll get back to that. 
um, but more so during, why, why yell at your athlete? Why tell them they're not doing a good job? Why, get, why allow them to already feel we, like less? You know, you need to empower this person as much as possible. Yeah, if they're not doing a good job and they're going to lose and it's the second or third round, yeah, let's be a little honest with them, but let's do it with some sense of motivation, some sense of eagerness that's going to get them pumped up. You know, like, hey, you still got this, but I'm going to need to see some urgency. I'm going to need to see you run through this person because if not, things aren't going to look so bright for us. Yeah. Like, th- there, there's got to be some element of, like, you got this as opposed to, hey, like, hurry up, hurry, come on. You got 10 seconds left. 10 seconds left before you lose this match. What are you putting in that person's head? And on your on your athlete, you're telling them you're good. If like if you don't, you're going to lose this match. They're thinking they're going to lose this match. They're already done. Yeah. So I think how things are worded are super important, but let's also be honest. Like whatever you share, like think really carefully what you're saying. You utilize those words. If you're noticing something that they're not doing and they should do it, like hey, get the underhook with your right hand. Post off the left. Okay, turn your hips. No, no, turn the other way. Like, to a degree where, like, everything they say is, like, you're tired, you're fatigued, you, you possibly don't see something they do. And when the cornerman's telling you these things, I've been in these situations. And I'm like, oh, whoa, I didn't see that. Like, I'll literally, even when I roll in jiu-jitsu class, like, I'll look over because our coaches are awesome. They'll, like, corner us through some matches at the gym. And then I'll realize, like, I'll be looking at them, like, this hand or this hand. They'll be like a right hand. I'm like, okay, they'll get the specifics. And then I'll roll, get a pass. Things are good. Would not have done that if I didn't have a good corner there. So going back to them being really hard on you, I think, man, like, this is this is what Pedro said to me. And he said it too. He's like, I'm going to be blunt with you. And this was after. He first, he's like, I'm not going to cushion it. He's like, Kenny, you're like, you know, you're, you're hunting. He's like, you see you see an elk, you run for the elk. You know, you see a bear, okay, you start running for the bear. You know, now you see a monkey, okay, now you go to the monkey. He's like, you want to hunt elk? Hunt the elk. Don't get distracted trying to hunt other things. So he, he said that, and he's like, good job, though, good effort. He's like, we'll get back to the drawing board next week. He's like, enjoy the trip now, but he's like, remember what you're hunting. And... What that mean to you? That to me, and I know what he was trying to say was, he saw me so involved with so many different fitness endeavors, especially during COVID. You know, run for farmers, for instance, which is for a great cause. I won't regret it. But like, there's just a lot of things like oh, unrelated strength training that didn't have to do with jujitsu. Um, there is relative strength training that I now do that's very involved with how it applies to jujitsu. Like I do a lot more grip strength training now. I do a lot of neck training. Didn't do that shit before. But again, he humbled me. He woke me up and was like, hey, if I only have so many hours of training, if I want to be the best in jiu-jitsu, why am I not at least spending that time training jiu-jitsu? You know, and he genuinely, like I, him and I had uh, a good talk. Like I thought I was training a lot and he made me realize I wasn't. Mm-hmm. He's like, to be the best, you know how often these world champions are training? Eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I'm hardly at that time was scratching one. Now I'm at one and a half to two hours a day. That's what I could do for now. <laughs> yeah. You know, like with the day job. But yeah, man, that's kind of where I'm at with the whole um, the question you asked. Do you have a specific focus during training? 
um, as opposed to before you're just showing up and doing what what was told or yeah, now yeah. do you have kind of a, a program that you're trying to complete or something that you're trying to improve oh, on what does it look like for you now what's the difference man. now i have a much deeper sense of respect for drilling um i'm drilling way more now i i used to just spend man i feel like 75 percent of my training just rolling it's like oh roll hard rolls let's yeah. just keep rolling oh cardio is good let's just keep getting different guys on the mats, but they're not really learning anything new. So I learned to respect two things. Number one, when I'm rolling, same game plan. Molinero just told me this recently, and it was brilliant. It was just a reminder. It's like, hey, when you're in camp and you're gearing up for these big competitions, yeah, learn new things and drill, but don't spend all your time trying to consistently change your game plan. So have a game plan. Know what you're good at. Every single role you have, treat it the same way. You know, for me... I mean, I, without even spoiling it, but sure, I'll share it, is get the double leg, be first, pass around his legs, be inside control, knee on belly, have him turn around, get his back, choke him out. Yeah. Like, that's that's for me. Like, that's what I have to consistently go with. Or takedown, we scramble, he's in turtle. Okay, I have head and arm, get around to his back, get back mount. At the end of the day, I'm starting and finishing in the same spot. I love to get the takedown, start with getting the first two points, and end off with getting his back. Because that's something all my years through BJJ, since I was a white belt, I love being in. And it was very easy for me to go to, just based off of like what made sense to me. And Molinero shared it too. He's like, there's things I did at a white belt that I'm still doing. Mm-hmm. But now I'd say with 10 years of perfection and experience. Yeah. So he's like, never forget to fall back on the thing that like you're, you're good at. Like don't You keep learning new things, but go back on what you know but then the next thing to that man is like, okay, if I'm learning something new, I need to drill it so much to the point that I can do it in my sleep. So like now I get frustrated when I learn a new move, right? Like if I don't remember it, that's my fault because I didn't drill it enough. So now what I'm doing is, okay, I'll roll. If I'm tired, I'm like, okay, well, don't just roll again. Like it's not a cardio test. Grab someone on the break and just drill. And just drill what we learned today or the past week or whatever the theme was, you know? By drilling, do you just want to get your numbers in? Or is it more of like, you know, you start with a low resistance and then your opponent develops a higher level of resistance till you're, you know, sufficient enough to do it in live rolling with somebody who's maybe equivalent uh, at purple belt? Yeah, I'd say... What's more effective? The latter is way more effective. Right? It's way, way more effective. I definitely would do that more. I just find I'm obviously going with zero resistance and I'm just trying to practice what that individual uh, and I are working on. But what's nice too, man, is like go with like a white belt and a blue belt and then practice yeah. that new technique. They're going to give you good enough resistance where it will be hard enough where it's a challenge, but easy enough where you can still find a way to execute a new move. And then with the purple belts and above, stick to what you know, you know, and, and, and that's what I'm really trying to do right now. Yeah. Do you find like there's a lot more creativity when you're, when you're rolling with somebody at, at, at a lower caliber or maybe a lower belt, right? Like you can take more risks. Uh, a lot more because you can be a lot more confident in getting out of uh, bad positions, right? If you yeah. end up on your back and in, in, in a white belt's in side control, well, you're way more confident getting out of that position than if a black belt has you in side control, for example. Oh, exactly. Right? Like, so. man, I think, I think a roll with a belt below you, no matter how much below they are than you, it should be twofold. Number one, what did I just give this person confidence-wise or skill-wise? To make them feel like they're going to be excited to roll with me again. Because I'm a big believer in, okay, 
if you're a belt or a couple belt levels higher than someone, give that person the opportunity to learn something from you in any way, shape, or form. Maybe it's you just like coaching them through something that they're kind of like, they know and it's a little bit foggy. Well, help them. Like what, 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 what are you going to gain from like you trying to strangle this mm-hmm. white belt or blue belt, right? Like, don't get me wrong. There should be some blue belts that are going to give you a damn hard time as a purple belt. It's true. I've, I've had that happen several times. So yeah, you'll fight for it and you'll go. But also for you now, you should, you made a good point, be a little risky, but try the new things. Mm-hmm. So they stick. It makes no sense to me if I just like bully a white or blue belt. Do you find though, say for example, if you're rolling with somebody like who's at a similar skill level as you, maybe mm-hmm. a purple belt, you know, maybe, maybe the belt system doesn't matter as much, right? Just if they're at a similar level of skill of you as you and uh you're less inclined to take risks because you're less confident being in a position where you're vulnerable right so does that come back down to like having insufficient uh insufficient amount of defense uh against somebody who's as good as you um is that why you don't take too many risks against somebody who who potentially is a purple belt compared to you being a purple belt i i would just relate this to ego like I, I've, I've been there many times. I'm still trying to deal with it where it's like, okay, do I need, like obviously when you're with another pro belt, you feel so evenly matched. Yeah. So let's be honest. If you know and feel like you're winning through points in the club and it's not being tracked or you submitted them, okay, great. It's a confidence booster. You're like, okay, sweet. I feel good about this. I feel like I can give someone at the same rank of me a hard enough time and I can be rewarded to get my hand raised in, in competition. So, as far as taking risks go, yes. In that type of mindset, Danny, 100%, man. I feel like I do try and go like in situations where I'm not going to end up being so risky that I end up getting something taken. But also, I need to ask myself, okay, well, would it be okay to take risks? Yes. Not in a competition, but in on the mats. What do I have to lose? No, I risk it. Oh, that's what would have happened? Okay, now I know. Whatever, tap, you got me, let's try yeah. again. So that's what I'm trying to recognize now too more. So I'd argue, yes, be more risky in your in your gym. Because what do you have to lose? You know, you're going to roll that guy again right away. Like you got another seven minutes to roll. Um, so uh, as long as you just let ego go, then yes, I think there's, you have nothing to lose when you're being more risky. Now don't be stupid. I, I, think, I think there's a difference between being risky and stupid where I've had moments where I'm just like, know that I'm rolling into a situation where I'm going to be in a uh, in a worst possible situation. Um, that to me is like one step closer to giving up. But just be risky enough to be like, okay, if I do try this, I have an idea of where I'd go. I think this is the right move to make. Let's try it. And then after, talk with your training partners. I think that has helped so much, man. Yeah. Like I've, I've had moments, depending on where I'm at in camp or where I'm at with my mind, where if I just go to the next guy right away. I, I'm not too sure about knowing what my training partner was thinking while rolling with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been very advantageous. Just asking like, hey, in that moment, like, and I finally asked, man, Big Tony, love this guy, he's a beauty. Big Tony gets me caught in his half guard every single time. It took me, man, probably four months. And I finally was like, Tony, what are you doing to me there? Like, can you show me how I keep getting stuck? And man, he's so happy to teach me. He's like, okay, I'm going to tell you, but now you're going to know my secrets. <laughs> but he was like telling me like he's waiting for me to lift my knee up. Okay, when I do, he switches his hips and he baits me. But like you don't know until they verbalize it. 
you know. yeah that's a good point i feel like you're more inclined to take risks the more confident uh you are in your defense if you're very confident in in your ability to defend in bad positions then you're way more inclined to take a risk right from maybe maybe on your back and you go for a an arm bar, for example, there's a good possibility if the person that is defending the arm bar will, will progress the side control if, you, if you're not successful with it. But if you're very confident getting out of side control, then regaining your guard or regaining an advantageous position, you're going to be way more inclined to shoot for that arm bar rather than being fearful of, okay, if I miss it, then I'll be down two points. And if I'm down two points, then it'll be a tie and I'll be in a bad position. And then I'll have to work my way up. And, and obviously to win the match, you need to have more points or you need to submit the person. So the big question is, is are you competing? And I think a lot of people do this, especially in jujitsu, mm-hmm. they compete to win on, they win on points, right? That's like, uh, they think that uh, you're supposed to win by any means, which is the truth, but yeah. they don't actually take the risk to go for the submission because they might be in a vulnerable position. And maybe that's why jujitsu is not as exciting as uh, mixed martial arts where guys are consistently looking for the finish and the finish is way more uh, likely to happen. Um, or in boxing, for example, I think maybe that might be a cultural issue with jujitsu. And, and maybe you can speak about this as well, but um, most guys want to just be you know, protective of the points that they've accumulated in the match to make sure that they get the victory yeah. rather than getting the victory in the most organic, natural way that jujitsu has to offer, which is submitting, choking, arm bar, you know, knee lock, whatever it may be, yeah. is to finish that person. Yeah. Um, so do you have a finish first mentality or do you have a win first mentality as far as points and retaining I, points? I now just based off of being more patient in the game and not being as uh like let's say hungry for a finish i am play to win mentality right and that's a that's a utilizing every second of the match at all costs so yes is it a little bit more of a slower match 100 percent it is uh but it, it is safer and it, it, it allows you again if we look at it from a a jiu-jitsu perspective IBJJF the way they have their fights sounds like well, there's a vacuum going on yeah, that's a, sounds, hey, that's a sounds like a duty. tornado yeah that's a crazy <laughs> vacuum <laughs> that's gonna be picking up in the background but it's all good um, no what I was gonna say man is again you don't want to be too risky in competition in my perspective you want to be safe you better be safe than sorry and especially when in IBJJF you have so many opportunities to get points. So why not take advantage of those points? Why not recognize that those points that you're accumulating not only are going to psychologically break your opponent down, but they're also going to lead you one step closer to be able to get a submission. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's all going to lead eventually to that if you're successful with it. And if not, then okay. Then maybe you know you, you had a tough enough opponent that kept going back and forth and kept getting out of positions for you to go back into one. Um, but the way I look at it, man, is I was going to make a point about this is, yeah, with IBJJF, you have possibly, if you're going to win, you're going to be fighting 8, 10, 12 matches. Like, especially when you're in the world stage, especially if you go to open and you want to get, like, double medals, like, you're going to fight so many people. So if you did go in with, like, that hungry, I'm going to fight to submit mentality, like, don't get me wrong. Some guys have it, but it depends on the rule set. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I would fight to submit. Here's the difference. I would fight to submit in a no-time, no-point system match 
it's like, okay, super fight. You're fighting this guy. No time limit. What do you prefer? What's... I would prefer no time limit. Right? It, it uh, doesn't yeah. it feel like it's more of like... It'd be more fun. It'd be like more of a... It'd feel more real. Yeah. Um, you know, that's uh, funny enough, man. I, I'm like big into uh, uh, Hicks and Gracie right now. And I've been like listening to all his podcasts that he's on, marketing his book. I'm halfway through his book, Breathe, right now. And he's... He has some type of way about UFC, right? He like feels some type of way about like the rule sets. And he's like, talks on podcasts. And he's like, you know what? No. He's like, I remember in my Valetudo days, it was no no rules, no holes barred. This was fight. You know, he was, he'd say like, this was the way we fight. He's like, this, you know, every round decision bullshit. He's like, I don't like <laughs> He's like, you asked me to fight in UFC today? Okay, no problem. I would fight, but change the rules. And, uh, I mean, to a degree, if you look back on the way he fought, he would be in fights where it was like, all right, you're going to fight this guy in Japan, no rules, yeah. no time limit. But he he loved that. He loved the idea of like, all right, well, this is a fight. Because he can't get out, I can't get out unless one of us like dies trying. Yeah. And he had this like, uh, you die or you win mentality. Mm-hmm. It was something his family, uh, his wife actually, specifically at the time, was really scared of. She knew, like, he's going to go in there. And no matter how hard someone tries to choke him out or anything, he's not going to tap. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's cool, man. He has a, his mindset's, like, so badass. I like that mentality. I think, yeah, a lot of people, this has been a conversation in MMA. Like, people are, they're debating whether there should be time limits and there should, whether there should be any sort of breaks between rounds. Um, I mean, some fights would be fucking two hours right? like imagine yeah, um, it would just go on forever I, like imagine like a holloway volkanovsky fight both guys are so durable you know an amazing amount of conditioning on both sides man we'd be watching a fight for an hour and a half right it, and how much damage like you, you had there has to be some sort of longevity right yeah. so you have to perform in a short period of time but i think it's a it's a conversation worth had i mean there's there's benefits on both sides and uh so it, it would be cool to have like a super fight every now and then yeah where we have an hour straight of fighting with no it. breaks you know like try maybe like the super welterweight champion maybe they have a super division right for people who want to fight for an hour straight it'd but be a, a lot of liability fight. obviously it'd be a completely different fight i feel like it'd be uh, such a different take I mean, you might get the guys that are going to do whatever they can to avoid. I think there should be like, hey, like you're going to get a penalty if you try to like avoid, 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 right? Like, like keep. Like, There's got to be some rules. Yeah, for sure, you got to yeah. like engage. Okay, if you don't engage, it's a penalty. After five, you're out. Like maybe, maybe not the engagement because think about it. If you're fighting for two hours, right, you're going to try to conserve your energy as best as possible. So you're not going to engage in every single, uh, every single, you know. Um, combination that's had right you're not going to always engage in every single situation you're going to have to understand that you know there's no Just limit there's no break five minute break five yeah minute imagine break. <laughs> yeah but i mean i, I think it'd be i think it'd be awesome because a lot of time man you you know how quick 15 minutes is gone so fast. like six months of training of your life is gone within 15 minutes 15. and you've you've either showed that you've done a great job or you've you didn't show what you've worked on like you've got 15 minutes whereas fuck maybe if you've had 45 minutes you can have you can afford to lose the first 15 minutes but now you have another 30 minutes to display what you've worked on and get in the groove of the fight so there's immense pressure with only having 15 minutes of fight 
Um, but at the same time, you see how exhausted and dead some of these guys are. The best conditioned guys in the world after 15 minutes of fighting, they can barely walk afterwards. And I've been in that situation depending where... Depending on the damage. That yeah, depending on you know their yeah, output yeah. and how much they've... Uh, uh, you know, the accumulation of damage that they've taken. Yeah. So it's one of those arguments that's... Yeah, it, it goes both ways. I mean... What do you feel like you got? I feel like it's cool that you're really on this topic. You listened to uh, John Donaher on Lex podcast recently, right? Yeah. I... Um, I think it's a chance to listen to that. KB actually, it's cool. He recommended it, and it seemed like you 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 took that right away to listen to it. Um, what would be like solid spark notes? Because I obviously want to listen to it, but it's so related to what we talked about today. Um, what, what what did you really get out of listening to that? Like it was like a three and a half hour. Yeah, it's a long one. I mean, man, it's uh, it's the whole thing is filled with gems on both sides. I mean, Lex yeah. asks incredible questions and. Um, Donaher is just a philosopher at heart and he has so much knowledge, but a lot of it was jujitsu based and, and kind of based on the conversation that we're having. I think the big thing that I kind of took away, um, as far as like his, from his jujitsu expertise was if you want to learn how to be successful at jujitsu, you don't need to do 15 different submissions. You need mm -hmm. to really dial in six. You know, five or six high probability. And he's a, a guy that's based on stat, like you know statistical measures of success. He looks at how many times does a fight get stopped by a rear naked choke? Well, it's a very high percentage choke, right? So you should really dial that in. Be the best you can be at a rear naked choke. Yeah. And even further than that, before you get to the level of you know the five or six submissions that you're dominant in make sure that you can get out of the worst positions possible because that's more important than submitting somebody so instead of a white belt going into jujitsu jiu jiu and focusing on being the aggressor and passing guard and knee on belly getting into mount and then attempting to choke somebody from there um, be really good at escaping vulnerable positions like being on your back learn how to retain guard because if you're comfortable and very uh, precarious situations and, and positions, then you're going to be comfortable taking risks. Uh, and, and, you know, you'll be very confident that if somebody has your back, they're not going to choke you. You've been here 10,000 times with people who are way better, um, you know, than, than possibly your opponent at submitting people. So really focus on the defense before you uh, think about the offense. And this is relatable to every, almost every single um, combat, you know, martial art or combat sport. Yeah. You've got to focus primarily on not getting hit before you start dishing out, uh, you know, your offense. Right? Yeah, wow, learn how to defend first. That's a, that reminds me so much, man, of uh, like my white belt experience and how much I'm like, I get angry at myself sometimes when I look back on it and how much I care to just survive. Like, it was just a win for me if, like, I wouldn't tap. But, like, mind you, buddy's, like, mounting me. He's got me in the back. I'm just here. Like, I'm losing, like, terribly from a point perspective. But, um, yeah, man, it's, like, you make a good point about, like, survive, but know how to survive. Like, like know, okay, like, if, you, if you're in a situation and you're a white belt, you're a beginner, or even as you get onward in, like, what you're doing in practice. Like, it's another thing in a fight. Like, stay calm. Don't just give up. But, man, in practice, it's like, okay, if you don't know genuinely what to do or how to get out, why is he going to sit in there and get choked? Mm -hmm. And that's what I was doing. I'm like, I don't know how to get out, but I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to act tough and, like, ride out this time. Probably wasted hours on that shit, man. Yeah. Hours just sitting in a rear naked choke, just getting my, <laughs> my butt handed to me, you know? But, uh, man, if I could go back to your point, I wish I'd just tap and be like, dude, how would I get out of this? 
Yeah. You know, or be like, hey, I tried it in this way. It doesn't work. What am I doing wrong? But uh, that's a cool thing about jujitsu, man, is like, or like anything, where you realize you can go back in a sport and be like, hey, well, at the time you think you're doing it so right, but you learn so much more and be like, no, I took a completely different approach, or I would take a completely different approach now. You know, like the time you spend on the mats, like you could, you could, man, you could be like training 10 hours a week, but you could still suck ass. It could be terrible. Yeah, if you're Someone not focused on the right like thing. Six hours a yeah. week and they're kicking your butt. Well, what are they doing in those six hours? True. So it's like the quality of the training. So what I did, my quality was terrible. Remember as a white belt man, I was like 16, 17, just like, just like trying to get out of the joke. But I should have just tapped early and then asked people how to get out. Yeah, that's a good and point. And then you probably focused on being the aggressor, right? You have a very much. aggressive style. Yeah, so yeah. as a white belt, you probably, too. you probably, yeah, you always wanted to, first. if you're rolling with a blue belt with more experience, you're going to try your best to tap the guy out. But most likely you're going to end up on your back in a bad position exactly. eight, nine times out of 10. So you might as well develop great foundations and defensive positions and know and understand how to get out of those situations effectively eight, nine times out of 10. And then, of course, when, when you've reached that level of success, now you can focus on being the aggressor because especially as a white belt, even if you are in side control or mount, how long are you going to be there, right? Like the guy that's a purple belt underneath you is most likely going to be pretty proficient in getting out of that position and you're probably not going to be able to retain that position. So majority of time you spend for the first few years, and I experienced that myself, was being on the bottom, being a shitty situations and not just surviving but actively trying to get out of there and i mean if i'm caught in an arm bar or a heel hook i'm not gonna fucking <laughs> be an idiot and just not tap like you've got to remove your ego a lot in that uh, in that sense yeah. too but at the same time what i realize is if i was rolling with another white belt equivalent to my skill in jujitsu then you have way more ego and and you want to make sure that you don't tap in those situations right and so that's yeah. when the ego comes in but if i'm rolling with a black belt or somebody who's way more experienced you know it's natural for that person to be better than me and so i'm, I'm naturally going to tap a lot quicker rather than being in a terrible situation that can risk injury um, that's a great point man and you know what you what you said reminded me so much of the importance of knowing that okay if that person is a higher level than you then it should be within the gym's culture to know that, okay, if the coach or coaches only have so many eyes, if we're putting the younger belt or the lower level belt ranked with a higher level, okay, well, the higher level, don't just sit there and choke the yeah. the, little, the, the, the lower ranked belt. You know, like, okay, do it, but now coach them how to get out of it. You know, and I feel like maybe, maybe you made a good point earlier if I look back. I was just a little shit white belt. And I used to, like, go work too much off my strength and be aggressive where I maybe needed to get humbled and be put in those situations. But uh, it's a two-way street. You got to have great coaches and good training partners. And um, it sounds to me, man, like we, we have that. We just got to get you back in the jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like here, like acting like I'm John Donner. Bitch, I'm a white belt. Bitch, I'm a white belt, but that's in a gi. We're not talking about no gi. <laughs> no gi, I don't have any belts, right? No gi, bro. <laughs> bro, you got to get your like a no gi... Um, you gotta get your nogi colored belt right away here. <laughs> yeah, your rash card. Your rash card with a color on it. <laughs> get you a black belt. Right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so black belt in philosophy. <laughs> White belt in jujitsu. Oh man, that's awesome. Man, well, man, you know what? We 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 just we as we always do get in a great conversation. That was a solid hour long podcast, man. I just wanna um, have you. 
just recognize, man, that we appreciate you every single time you come on. It's like, you know, I I learned that through the podcast three years into it. Why not continuously bring people in your life that are always in it? Even if it's like us repeating stories or our last half of our conversation was great. I got so much out of that, you know. So I think it's always important to bring your homies on the podcast. And, um, you know, there, there's so much that I want to appreciate, man. Like you've spent a lot of time working hard during this pandemic. You've done a lot for your family business. Shout out to Car West. You know, if anyone needs a vehicle, um, Danny's your man, right? He's your guy to go to in Edmonton, Alberta. And man, just keep doing what you're doing, right? You do a lot of great things for the people you love. And uh, we're just glad to get you on the podcast for the 80th and brilliant time. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, where can people find you? People could find me online. People could find me in Edmonton. People can find me in Leduc at Car West, but uh, these are. I'm acting like I have a big social following <laughs> and, and like I have tons of influence in this <laughs> realm. I don't. Uh, I occasionally post pictures once every three or four belt. months. <laughs> not true. I'm not a Noki black belt. <laughs> um. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You and are one of the greatest people I know. And uh, fuck, it's an honor you having me on the podcast. So I'm glad we always have things to talk about. We could we could talk about 68, 68 different topics right now. Um, so maybe uh, maybe on the 6,000th episode, we'll, we'll touch on some of those topics. But that's for a different brother. time. You got it. Happy third birthday to second floor. And it's always a pleasure to have you, Danny. Thanks, Appreciate doc. it, my brother. That's a wrap, baby.